0: Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. Digital Lives Asia, Graham Brown and Simon Kemp. Simon, welcome back to Asia. Thank you, sir. Just back this week. Is it home in Singapore?
1: Indeed, yeah. I've been in Europe for the last six weeks, so it's great to be back in the uh, the hub of all things exciting as you've been positioning it in the last few days on your yeah. various videos.
0: Exactly. Well, at least back in the warm. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's lovely to be away from the snow. Much that, as I
1: enjoyed seeing family, there's only so much snow a man can
0: take. You'll miss the seasons, they kept saying. <laughs> Nonsense. You can visit them. How, how long have you been in Singapore now, Simon?
1: It's been over 10 years. So, oh. in fact, it's been 11 since my first visit here. Um, yeah. And then, obviously, I was in Bangkok before that
0: as well. Yeah, right. So, um
1: yeah, I'm Asianified now.
0: You are. I mean, it's worth saying. I don't know how much people know about the man, but you, you've lived all over. You Not just in... You've lived in Singapore, Bangkok. You spent quite a bit of time in Europe as well. You speak like, I don't know, a whole bunch of languages, don't you?
1: Yeah, I learned all these European languages when I was studying. They've not necessarily come as much use in Asia as they might have done if I'd stayed in Europe. But yeah, um, unfortunately, I didn't manage to translate that love for languages into Asian languages. So I am still hopeless when it comes to things like Mandarin. But nonetheless, at least I'm still... But you, you, you,
0: you have good pronunciation, even like when you fire it off when you
1: <laughs> sound convincing and confident that's
0: the you do word. you do you do but that's, that's half of it isn't it? i mean if, i think if you can speak some languages you can pick them up quite easily at least you have a what's the word i'm looking for some kind of um cultural empathy with other languages
1: lovely phrase I'm yeah, like it is, isn't
0: it? i just made it up that but, that. yeah all right so here, here's how it happens in digital lives asia every month simon comes with a cracker of a stat <laughs> and uh, we we dive into the stat and find out all the stories behind it because this is what you do, isn't it, Simon? You are you are the man who plasters my LinkedIn feed, not not directly, but by th- all other people in the internet sharing your stuff because you publish those big fat reports about digital lives. Yep. Through Hootsuite and uh, We Are Social, correct? Right. And yep. uh, they just get everywhere. They seem to be like the touchstone, the cornerstone, if that's the word, of all people's understanding of what goes on in social media in the world so
1: yeah it's funny isn't it the data seems to spark conversations as soon as you put it out there and there's nothing that will provoke debate like a number so uh, i found that they're um, not just useful but they're also sort of interesting from a conversation perspective as well so hopefully that's what we're going to do for the next exactly
0: they say hour <laughs> yeah you well you you've had a plenty of time sitting on planes thinking about what stat you're going to share with us today so simon kemp over to you
1: so I'm going to surprise you today, and it surprised me. I had all this great stuff prepared for a different stat, and this afternoon I've been preparing a new report, and the learning that I just got to is that in terms of the global listings, in terms of websites right. by visitors, Taobao has just overtaken Amazon. Wow. So from an Asia Lives perspective, you put that into the context of, you know, this is e-commerce all around the world. I reckon that's a pretty staggering development in the world of e-commerce. Right. This time, three months ago, Amazon was ahead. But just in the last few weeks, um, Taobao has taken over. And what's really interesting is this is the ranking according to Alexa, which is an Amazon company.
0: Uh, So there's no sort of complaints of bias there.
1: No, this is from Amazon themselves, and they are listing Taobao as that
0: about right. Ta- being who? who Who's the name that you're familiar with behind Tauba?
1: Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more
0: at atp.show.
1: So you, you probably know more about Talba than I do, but they're sort of... I suppose they're an online shopping destination, as yeah. they like to call themselves. So they're a marketplace. They're a little bit different to Amazon. There's an awful lot more stuff even yeah. on Taiwan than on Amazon. But it, it, it's broad. So it's everything from tiny little merchants right the way through to big, big stores on there as well. Yeah. Um, you, you spent more time in China. So I think it's probably useful if you give a bit of perspective, especially because you're talking a lot about e-commerce at the moment.
0: So, oh, right. Yeah, so definitely. So here's the thing. Like, you know, not many people really know about what the state of e-commerce in china is right and well Ta- taobao part of alibaba right it's a part of the alibaba group so you're familiar with alibaba you're familiar with jack Ma and his funny face you know he's out there he was in the world economic forum not so long ago you know you've seen this chinese guy on tv so people know there's something going on over there but they don't know how big it is and yeah. uh, i think Taobao's the biggest I'm not sure I mean, I need to be I have to look at the stats, but Taobao's the biggest part of Alibaba's e commerce platform, and it's just basically a lot of you know. well, I think it started off as a lot of mom and pop shops so, so mm. and but it's just really matured, a bit like eBay started right.
1: Yeah, and it's really interesting because I think anybody that's not had an opportunity to to experience Taobao, I mean, if you sort of think about it from a Western perspective, you've got a bit of eBay, you've got a bit of Etsy, you've mm-hmm. got a bit of Amazon, you've got all sorts of different stuff going on in there. And it's an absolute amazing experience. It's a little bit like if you've ever been on holiday to somewhere like Bangkok, Taobao would be the equivalent of Chatuchak Market, but an internet version of it. It's basically everything and it's crammed into this amazingly right. vibrant sort of space. So it's possibly, uh, this isn't meant anyway, judgmentally. It's less polished than Amazon, but there's just so much there and the experience is just, you know, you, you sort of feel like you found things when you go there. Mm. As much as, you know, Amazon likes to show you things, I think as much when I go to Taobao and its various different sort of portals, I kind of feel like I'm stumbling into things almost by accident, very much in that sort of market-like way. Mm. I think what's really interesting is, you know, something like e-commerce feels like it should be an incredibly international kind of offering, and yet you can see the the cultures coming through in the way these things come to life,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which Absolutely. is why, like, as part of Asia Lives and Digitalized Asia, I thought that would be a really interesting sort of springboard for us to go deeper into the future of e-commerce in this oh, part oh yeah. of- Just from a China perspective, but obviously from around the region, and what that means from a global perspective as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, definitely. I think we're sort of sitting in in a a good vantage point seeing e-commerce in Asia, because what's happening here, I I don't think a lot of people outside of Asia really know just to what extent it's developed in Asia Mm -hmm. and and what's going on. Because you know, we're we're, let's say we are saying the, the the context of being outsiders to Asia in the West you know we're aware of Amazon just how I mean Amazon's a fantastic company and one of the best in the world in terms of marketing and corporate culture and so on so we sort of see that as a a role model really but you know in in Asia it's getting its ass kicked really isn't it I mean I know it's it's launching in Singapore isn't it I mean you've got Amazon Prime now
1: Yeah, so it launched a few months back. I believe that they've launched in Australia now as well. But it's very much focused on grocery deliveries at the moment in both countries. So they've not gone whole hog like they would have done in countries like um, the US and the UK. It is big in Japan, which is quite interesting. Once again, Japan being that slightly sort of different to everywhere else in the world. Well,
0: they still have Yahoo, right? So there you go.
1: But um, from what I understand... I think it's now their second or third biggest con- um, country for Amazon, Japan. Wow. So wow. it's even big. Yeah. So it's third after the UK. It's even bigger than Germany, which was previously the third. So massive in terms of um, revenue opportunities for them up in Japan. But for the rest of Asia, it doesn't seem to have been that phenomenal growth. And they've not actually got the same level of offerings across Amazon in the other countries as well.
0: Right. Uh, so, I don't know how it was for you Simon but you know like when I moved to Japan I was using Amazon because I, you know I was just ordering every, I'm like one of these people who just I can't be bothered to go to the shops I'm just gonna order it and I order like three of these things right so mm. you know everything every day Amazon 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 come into the house and then somehow I don't know how it happened but I discovered this thing called Aliexpress I, <laughs> and I, where has this been all of my life right and then suddenly I was just ordering Everything off AliExpress. And AliExpress being the... I think it's only international, isn't it? But it's basically tapping into Alibaba and that sort of Taobao network. But, you know, it's aimed at foreign buyers. You can order direct from China to Japan and pretty much most countries in the world. And, you know, the the cost of postage is so cheap that it works out in many cases cheaper to buy and import something from China than it does from your local Amazon, right?
1: Yeah, which is... That's one of the most interesting things about e-commerce at the moment is that where you buy it from is very much determined, I think, a lot by the delivery aspect of it. And right. it kind of feels like delivery is one of those industries that is totally ripe for some kind of massive disruption. Right. Now, I know there's an awful lot going on under the surface. and it, It's just that it's not as talked about as something like Uber or Airbnb, but it kind of feels like global Delivery, global logistics, especially when it comes to delivery of e-commerce purchases, it feels like that is a massive, massive opportunity for Mm. exactly the reasons that we talked about previously. So I know you've got companies like Amazon that have set up in places like Singapore, but they've not quite cracked the whole full-on Amazon experience as you'd be used to it in the West yet. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: It's that bit that I'm kind of looking at and wondering who it is that's going to crack it. Is it going to be one of the sort of, you know, is it UPS or FedEx that's going to come in and totally get their heads around how to make this a lot more economic so that I can start buying really relatively cheap items from anywhere in the world and get them delivered anywhere in the world where I Mm -hmm. live? Or is it going to be somebody completely different that brings in some kind of really out the box way of thinking about logistics and cracks it from that perspective? So, I kind of feel it's got to be an Asian thing. I don't know, yeah, maybe I'm just yeah. biased, but you know, just listening to the things that you talk about on your various different podcasts as part of the the ATP stuff, I kind of feel like the answer is going to come from here.
0: Mm-hmm. Agree.
1: So I'm going to ask you: Have you seen anything on your travels? That- <laughs>
0: well, Simon, it's funny that you ask because it it's. Well, a bit of a coincidence, and this is not set up. Everybody, by the way, it's um, <laughs> you know I didn't even know what stat we we're going to talk about today. So Simon surprises me. And um, yesterday I interviewed. It's not live yet, but I interviewed um, the MD of Lala Move. So right. Blake, Blake Larson. So L- Lala Move is uh, like the last mile logistics that you talked about. Mm-hmm. It's an Asian company f- founded in Hong Kong. It's in, I think in China, it's called something like Huala, something move or something like that. I can't remember. Forgive me. I've got it wrong. But it's got a different name in China. Yeah. Um, it, It's all over the region. It's about six or seven countries. But what it does is this, it basically, you know, it. so you've got, if you go to a place like Bangkok, you've got like 3 million motorbikes, right? And yeah. what it does is it, that's a sort of like, you know, it's an Airbnb problem where you've got a lot of. Um, resources that are not getting used. You know, it's like with Airbnb, like people have spare rooms, right? That's where it all kind of started. And so the the genesis started where Blake Larson went to a place like Bangkok doing his research and said, um, you know, how how much does it cost to deliver this package, right? And the the driver said, let's just for argument's sake, 40 bucks or something, right? He said, well, you know, how much would it cost to hire you for the day? And the driver said 40 bucks. It's like the same, (laughs) They said, "Okay, <laughs> why is that?" And it worked out that well. The because the driver doesn't know where the next package is coming from. Yeah, he, he had to charge you for a day, right? Because yeah. you know that that could be it for him. So what Lala Move does is it, it basically frees up all that that inventory of all those you know the the guys with the bikes and the guys with the trucks and the rickshaws, whoever is delivering anything anyway and, you know, collects them via an app and enables them to deliver these packages everywhere, across the town, right? Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it's probably the second unicorn to come out of Hong Kong. I mean, it's, like you said, it's an Asian solution for Asia. I think it's a phenomenal company and it's going places. Right right now, it hasn't kind of got to the stage where, you know, it's like, you know, synced in with a, you know, an e-commerce platform like that, but it's working with people like Ikea and stuff like that, so... I think that's what you need to look out for. I mean, if you want to see a solution for the last mile, I think it will come from there.
1: It's really interesting that you mentioned them because I was doing some research on currencies this morning. I need to do an international job. I was quoting on foreign currencies. And as part of the advertising on that currency site, I saw stuff from Move, which is a really clever piece of positioning. If you think about it from an advertising perspective, if I'm checking currencies, there's a good chance I'm buying something from overseas. So congrats to their team. Well, there you (laughs) go. Retargeting absolutely and the fact that you're talking about them and I saw them this morning, I know there's a name for that which I can never remember, but all of a sudden you see something and then you see it everywhere
0: yeah so what's should... what's the what's this report you're writing on this sounds interesting
1: yeah so the the I do these As hopefully regular listeners, we're only in our third episode, but regular listeners should know that I do the the global digital reports. So every quarter I do a quarterly update on that. So I'm doing the Q2 update. Every January we publish the massive global annual reports. This is the first time I'm checking the numbers since then. Um, I think the other thing, you know, there's all sorts of really interesting things coming in. Normally the quarterly updates are just there to sort of help the conversation keep going. But actually this quarterly update has got lots of really interesting surprises in it from my perspective. So the fact that facebook usage has grown everywhere in the world over Mm. the last three months i think a lot of people may be surprised by that especially given you know there's there's been a lot of scandal unfortunately Mm. for the company over the last few weeks and they're they're dealing with a lot of challenges but from a user perspective it doesn't seem that there has been any change negatively in terms of user usage so I know, and it surprised me, right? So, No
0: such thing but, as bad publicity. <laughs>
1: well, it's interesting. I, I sort of speculate a little bit that some of it maybe people are going back in and checking that their security <laughs> <and private laughs> settings are up to date. But at the same time, people are right. still going in and they're looking at stuff. And what's really interesting is, you know, you've got the number of people using it. But the thing that I noticed as well, I, I sort of… It's part of the same list of websites that we got that um, the Taobao discovery from. It also tells me how much time people are spending on those individual sites. Now, admittedly, this is mainly driven from a web browser rather than from an app. But from what I can see, the amount of time that people are spending on Facebook has gone up as well, which is actually completely counter to recent trends. So it has been steadily falling over the last few quarters. Mm. But it's bounced back up again now. Um, So, yeah, I think, you know, from that perspective, the idea that social media – may have had a little bit of a dent in terms of people's fears. I think that they're separating out what the companies do with their data versus how those companies are collecting the data. My suspicion is that people are not yet fully sort of um, knowledgeable about how the data gets collected. And I wonder whether that is going to be the next big sort of thing that we need to address as an industry, is making sure that the average person on the street understands a lot more about how internet data collection works. Mm Because, you know, I mean, Facebook admittedly does have a huge amount of data, but it's not the only one. There's a yeah, huge yeah. number of other yeah.
0: companies out there with Fast. Do, do you, I mean, this is a really inter- interesting discussion in the context of going back to Alibaba as an example, mm. just how much they collect um, yeah. about data. And this is all often an, an interesting discussion because there's so much involved in it that Chinese companies like Taobao, Alibaba have a massive advantage over their Western counterparts because... They can collect data on scales and depths that Western companies just can't. You know, this is really interesting that that gives them a massive, you know, competitive advantage, whether or not it's ethically correct, they have that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but I think it's also comp- – I don't know whether you've seen this in your conversations on the street. I'd be really interested to know whether you've got a different perspective on this versus what the data says. But from what I've seen, and you know, we're talking about large-scale surveys here, Chinese people have a completely different perspective on privacy, especially right. online, compared to, say, an American or especially a German. Hmm. But the- they aren't concerned about it, obviously, but they they don't seem to have the same worries about a company that collects data in the interests of showing them more relevant advertising and whatever else. And I think it's just really interesting seeing the Asian perspective versus the Western perspective. Mm. It, does that match what you've been hearing in your discussions in your recent travels?
0: Yeah, I, it's difficult to actually... Work out what the reality is, and some people are quite, you know, optimistic about that. I mean, maybe you know, because I hang around with a lot of optimists. It's never a great thing at the end of the day, because you know, they they sort of they will say that, well, you know, like, you go back to Taobao and Alibaba, and you have got companies like Tencent as well. You know, on the on the e commerce side, they 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 look after their customers, right? Mm. You know, in the sense that they don't spam their customers to the kind of degree that a Western company would. Now, whether or not that's true is a different matter, but that's the perception, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is because they they work through sort of closed channels like WeChat, as an example, where it's almost impossible to do that. You know, it's, so that means that there's, there's a stronger relationship between a, a Taobao and Alibaba and, and the customer. right? That, that's the argument. That they mm. they don't abuse it, so therefore the customers are more likely to yield their data. That's how they kind of see it. Whether or not that's true, I'd be interested to know, because I'm sure they're probably, you know, I mean, they're, they're as aggressive in the marketing as the next guy, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you've got companies like Tencent, who run a variety of different social media platforms. So people outside of Asia will know them best for WeChat, which is WeChat. In mainland China, they've then got various other platforms and a social perspective like Qzone and QQ, which are much less familiar to people outside of China, but within China they are the absolute sort of day-to-day staples. WeChat now passed a billion users, which is pretty staggering. So they just announced that sneakily. It was one of the bylines in the uh, the most recent earnings update that they had. (laughs) So just over the Chinese New Year, they sneakily put it in in text and not even as a number saying we've now got more than a billion uh, monthly active users, which is a fantastic milestone. So, then, I one of the the five around the world with a billion plus users, which is you, you've got to you've got to admit that's an amazing achievement, especially considering that 94 percent of those are in mainland China itself. Yeah, so, yeah,
0: it's phenomenal. Yeah,
1: absolutely amazing. But you know, the, the levels of data that a company like Tencent collect are, from what I've heard, and I'm you know I, I unfortunately don't have access to the inside um, data sets that either of these companies have. But from what I understand, they collect a much greater variety of data compared to a Facebook, for example, because they've got tie-ups with the various different handset manufacturers in China as well. So they're able to collect broader kinds of activity. Because Mm. if you think about what WeChat does in China, so that Weixin platform, um, I'm sure we've talked about this on previous episodes, but just for the benefit of any new listeners, WeChat is not just a messenger platform. Once you get into mainland China, it allows you to do pretty much the entire internet on one app. So, Mm. you know, things like renewing your passport, booking doctor's appointments, you name it, you can do it on WeChat. Um, So, you know, just the sheer integration that that has into people's lives inevitably means that companies like Tencent do have a much wider spectrum of access to the kinds of things that we're doing and therefore the insights that they can develop are astonishing. Mm. I think, you know, China is a separate world unto itself so we talked previously about japan being slightly different obviously china is completely different as well especially compared to the rest of asia so i just got a, a thing a couple of days ago from the guys at global web index who are one of our partners on the the data reports that i produce and they've been having a look at people's concerns around privacy very topical stuff yeah um, and their update was based on the number of people that delete cookies, and then the people that use a VPN specifically for privacy concerns. What's really interesting is that APAC is up there at the very top of the sort of global perspective when it comes to deleting cookies. So, 48% of internet users in APAC delete cookies on a regular basis to protect their privacy. And the only place wow. where that's high, only place where that's higher is North America, 49%. Um, when it comes to using a vpn 13 percent of asia pacific internet users used a vpn in the last month mm. um, and that was second only to the middle east and i think it's quite wow. interesting yeah. a lot of the stuff in the middle east i would i would suggest maybe concerns about privacy from monitoring from governments yeah, as yeah, well yeah but um,
0: those, those vpns are a part of life aren't they if you go to china i mean that's the, the first time i went to china in recent years and just rocked up with my phone right whack it on roaming here we go oh no i actually had a local sim card that would be fine get that into the the phone can't ac- g- access gmail can't access yeah. google can't access google maps i'm like screwed how do i get to my hotel Cause, <laughs> you know that yeah. was the, that was a big shock for me like yeah that, i think it's- all the chinese of you know chinese use them like as if they, you know, because they change so fast as well, don't they? They use them like they're going out of fashion. So it's not. It's like a the big sort of open secret about China that everybody's using a VPN.
1: So theoretically, you're not supposed to. Um, well, well I,
0: I wasn't. Oh, sorry, did I just say I was using? <laughs> did I announce
1: that? <laughs> you used used to use one when you got. Yeah, it. yeah, I heard. I, th- I think they have parallel acceptability for people who don't right. have Mandarin as a first language. Right. I think that's what's the really important bit about again, that sort of internet experience in China. It's not that they don't have maps and it's not that they don't have all those services you've just talked about, but they are very, very Chinese for Chinese people. Yeah, and if yeah. you don't speak Mandarin and if you don't understand the cultural context, you're going to get lost immediately hmm. in terms of what you download and how you find these things. So, you know, I think from a local perspective, the ability to use a VPN to access content if you want, the government are definitely cracking down on that. But mm. from from what I understand, it's still something, obviously, that people want to be able to see what's going on in the broader world as well. Mm. But having said that, I think that the local services that you get within the Chinese Internet, in terms of the quality of service that you get, in terms of the breadth of services available, it's very, very similar if not better in a lot of circumstances to what somebody in the West would be.
0: Undoubtedly,
1: yeah. It's just that language barrier is the big challenge. And I think this is what's really interesting. And I think, I can't remember who said this, but it was one of the, the most interesting quotes Um, of the 19th century was what was the most important development of the century. And it was something around the fact that the U.S. decided to choose English as its first language instead of French, which apparently was an option at one point. Can you imagine?
0: And German, I believe, as well, was an option. That's one of
1: the options as well. Just think how different the world would be.
0: Terrible. <laughs> 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 and my, I, we get a lot of French speakers here on on the Asia Tech podcast, and I, I love them all. But they they know I'm joking. But you know, I mean, it's terrible for us in the sense that we'd have to learn French. Like we we get away with it, don't we? Yes.
1: And I think this this is the interesting bit is that the language that you grow up speaking versus the language that is the default in the world. I'm, I'm wondering whether there will come a time in our lifetime when Mandarin becomes more of a default. I mean, obviously, there's a a significant logistical challenge to changing the world's default language. But we're already at the stage where there are just about as many people that, speak Mandarin as a top language as they do as an English, uh, as speak English as their first language.
0: That is interesting. Yes.
1: I think it's probably even more. The number of people that speak it as a first or a second language, I think English is still the
0: top. Mm -hmm. I I wanted to ask you this because I I saw a stat the other day and I know it's sort of, this is your show and your stat, but because you're such a linguist. I wanted to I wanted to get your opinion on this. I saw a stat about that and it was really fascinating and I haven't been able to talk about it, so you've just given me a platform. <laughs> I saw there's two stats that I saw. And I want I want to throw these at you because you you know, you, you are well spoken on all different languages, an authority on, on linguistics worldwide. So here we go. The first one is is there's there's an estimated two hundred to three hundred million people in China learning English. Good right? God. I know. I mean, Staggering. yeah, I mean, you look at the growth in language schools there, and you have all those kind of like celebrity teachers, all that kind of nonsense going on. So that's one stat. And then there's this other stat from the US, which is there are more students in America learning, and you're like this because this is your language learning Italian than there are learning Mandarin. Isn't that surprising?
1: It's fascinating the choices that we make when we learn a language. So I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this a little bit of a, a personal perspective Please. on languages. I want to. Um, so I think, you know, the, the fact that there are two to three hundred, let's call it a quarter of a billion is a nice round middle of average in China. A quarter of a billion people learning English is probably the same number of people that speak English as the first language in the whole of the US. There you go. Yeah. And that's learning it as a yeah. second language. Because, you know, there's, there's a significant population in the US where Spanish is mm. the first language. Mm. But yeah, I think when, when you get to the looking at the US, I think there is a very dangerous perspective that if you speak English, the rest of the world will follow. Anybody that's ever tried to get to Japan without having a basic sort of Phrasebook with them will learn very quickly that, you know, much as they may understand what you're saying to them in English, they won't be able to respond back in English. And I think, you know, this is one of the most interesting things about learning a language is being able to understand it versus being able to speak it to very different things. Mm -hmm. And when it, especially when it comes to something like the Internet, being able to understand the written content that's on there or even the spoken content. If you can make your way through that, then suddenly you have access to so much stuff Mm. And if you just consider how much content there is on the web out there in all these different languages. I've just pulled up the stat from the report that I did back in January on the most common languages for web content. Yeah. So you've got 50% of websites are in English. The second one after that, fascinatingly, is Russian with almost wow. 7%. And I know, right? Isn't that fascinating? Chinese only comes in at ninth, and Not- Chinese is... I'm assuming that means Mandarin and Cantonese and all the various different bits that fall within that. Only two percent of web content is in Chinese, isn't that fascinating? Wow,
0: that, that's amazing.
1: I'm guessing that's going to change quite rapidly. Right. I think one of the, the big things is that because of that sort of tight ecosystem in yeah, China, yeah, yeah. almost everything goes onto the social web. We're talking about web domains here, I'm, I'm, and we're not talking about the right. If you look at yeah, something like yeah. WeChat, just the sheer number of messages that get sent right. on WeChat every day, you know, inevitably web conversations and internet power conversations, the majority of that I'm guessing is going to be Chinese driven. So mm-hmm. what you're
0: saying is that there's a vast, you know, amount of content in Mandarin, which isn't, it, it's not on a domain name, it's not a website, it's right. in the shadow web or whatever we're going to call it. It's in the, the shadow social world, isn't it? That it's just yeah. Not traceable
1: it's not being surfaced to yeah. people outside of that particular context and i think that goes back to them what you were talking about the people that learn more italian than chinese i mean i love italian i think of all the languages that i've learned it's the one i enjoy the most but that's very much on a social level unfortunately yeah. i've never translated it into any kind of business value <laughs> um but you know i think it, it sort of comes back to why western people would learn a language i think especially if they speak english as a first language i think mm-hmm. there's, there's a little bit too much of the expecting the rest of the world to learn my language and you know if you look at that from the the classic marketing perspective of put yourself in your audience's shoes you're already starting at a disadvantage because those chinese companies are learning uh, english i mean even learning french fascinatingly the number of french people uh the number of chinese people that are learning french if you think about that yeah it's just they're they're willing to learn a language and to to get out there that's the mindset that is what is making Asia such a vibrant place. I know you talk about this in so many different contexts across your different shows, but it is that mindset that this is the Asian century. Mm. This is Asia to the rest of the world now because, you know, they've, they've definitely got that initiative and that drive. Mm. There is this desire to go and explore the world, which I kind of get the sense is missing from the the Europeans and the the americans i don't know whether i'm just speaking to the wrong people but even when i was back in europe last week the number of people that i spoke to that had ever been to asia hmm. it's still you know it's very much the minority of people that have been outside of a western context
0: wow but, i mean you know, but think about it it's, it's polarized because there's people like you right yeah you're, you're, <laughs> exactly so that there are those people but they're the minority i mean you, you speak many languages you've lived in many countries and you've gone out and explored from A young age, right?
1: Yeah, and I think it's, do you know what it is? I remember when I was a kid growing up and I had this vision of what the rest of the world was like and I just sort of saw Asia was there be dragons, you know, it was the other side of the map and the, the kind of the stuff that you read about, it was the jungles of Borneo and it was an awful lot of very historic stuff that had very little to do with what modern day life in Asia is like. And I think this is the bit that, I would love to be able to convey in a much sort of more active and widespread kind of way to people back in the Mm. West is that you come to an awful lot of Asian cities, they're actually more technologically developed than most Western cities. They're more culturally inspiring and diverse than most Western places. Mm. Mm. There's so much going on here and it's so much more advanced than I think people expect. I remember when my my parents first came to Singapore, they know that Singapore is a first world city, but they did not have the expectation of just how advanced it would be in terms of transport, in terms of connectivity and all those kinds of things. And I think this is, I'm going to sort of keep weaving it back to your comment about the languages. I think this is one of the reasons why people in the West aren't necessarily learning Mandarin or other Asian languages is that they just think that Asia's waiting to catch up. Mm. i'm pretty sure i read this in one of or listened to this in one of your videos recently the reality is that asia is completely leapfrog they don't need to catch up with anything because the asia to asia world is already big enough that we could sustain the population here regardless of the west
0: but there's so much more to it than that as well right i mean you know going back to the original stat about taobao that just makes it very interesting doesn't it you've got that you know now what was once uh you know i mean e-commerce was once about creating you know cheap garments for the west wasn't it that's what it was about i mean when when you thought of you know go back to the 80s i know you weren't born in the 80s simon because you're a young chap but (laughs) for people like me you're slightly older but um you know it's like whenever you thought of places like hong kong it's always like oh there's these factories that make cheap shoes and like you know t-shirts and stuff like that's that's kind of what we thought wasn't it of the of Asia yeah but now you have like i mean where companies like alibaba are gonna see this huge growth is suddenly you have hundreds of millions, if not billions, of middle-class customers all over Asia Mm. who are just on their doorstep, right? And they have these delivery networks in place and they they kind of speak similar languages, if not the same languages in some cases, like Singapore as an example, right? So it's there. I mean, this is fascinating. And that, you know, there is that prospect, isn't it, that this could be something that the West misses out on. And, you know, I think that's fascinating because, you know, if you were a young guy graduating now you know, what would you do? Because you're you're a linguist. You went and traveled. Did you go to Italy first? I can't remember what the story was, but, you know, would you go to China now if you were like 18, 19, 20? What would you
1: do? So, yeah, I think knowing what I know now, I would definitely add something into that list. I don't think I would have stopped doing what I did. I might substitute French. Sorry, French listeners. um, I might substitute French for an Asian language, but ideally I would add to that list rather than swapping it. But I think what, what sort of fascinates me is that when, when you said missing out, I think an awful lot of this, if, you know, if you think about this in the business context of something like first mover advantage, mm. I think an awful – I still speak to a lot of companies around the world that are looking to crack Asia. And they're sort of – they're very much dipping not even a toe. They're dipping half a toenail if they're lucky <laughs> when they're thinking about Asia because, you know, obviously it's massive. If you think about Asia, we've got, what, four and a – 4.2 billion people yeah. living across the region, 1.3 or 1.4 billion of them are in China alone. It's just so daunting from a language, from a culture, from a distance, from a you-name-it perspective. And yet the opportunity that's there is so massive. I mean, you were talking about the sort of the different, whether it's middle class or whatever else. But if you take the top 25% of Asia, that's more than a billion people. Yeah. You know, that, that adds up to eight, um, a whole of Europe plus the US yeah. at all levels combined, right? And that's the top 25%. And, you know, I think a lot of people would be surprised. There is unfortunately still a huge amount of poverty here, but there's an incredible amount of disposable wealth that goes with that when you look at things like cost of living and stuff as well. So mm. it's it's not just, you know, let, let's see if we can get 1% of our revenues from Asia this year. Inevitably, that's a good thing. You know, I encourage everybody to think about that. But, mm. If you're not making 50% of your revenues from Asia in the longer term, then there's a bit, there's something going wrong there mm-hmm. because it's more than 50% of the world's population. So, yeah, I think, you know, if, if we do have the, the benefit of any young listeners that are thinking about the rest of their career, I'd be quite surprised if we manage that. That'd
0: be quite oh, good, Greg. No, they do. They do listen. I have to say, I've met them. Good. <laughs> I'm a, I'm, yeah, no, I, did. I was, I was, I was in Shanghai the other day, and um, I have to give them a shout out because you know, I've been, I've been pimping their names everywhere. So that I apologise if I've given them too much publicity, but um, I had Sean Cinder, Paratosh Raval, and Elliot Waxman, three guys from new york university nyu they were aged 19 to 20 they came over to shanghai on a semester to learn mandarin and to find out about shanghai and then they were sitting in a bar and and by the way no disrespect 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 to students but i was a student once and they were sitting there drinking water in a bar waiting for me (laughs) so okay all right these guys are pretty like serious right i mean good for them you know they've gone out there and done that so yeah that you know to your point about young listeners, they're there and they're out there doing this stuff and they're in Asia and some of them are doing it. So, you know, maybe not, you know, maybe it's not the default thing to do, right? You know, like when we graduated, it was going to the gap year type thing, right? But it's like, there are people out there who get it. You know, that is, that's exciting.
1: Your your reference there to doing a semester, I could not encourage that enough. So I managed to do two years, so four semesters abroad as part of my
0: <laughs> degree.
1: <Right. laughs> I extended my, extended my degree by a year to be able to do that. Um, much to my parents' frustration financially. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, was there, was that but, when you were in Italy or France when you were doing that? So
1: yeah, I did. I did a year in both France and oh, Italy, yeah. separate. So. You know, um, I think I did I did Italy first, which was an official part of my degree, and then I went to write my dissertation in France. And I did it all on advertising on the internet, would you believe, in France in the late 90s, which wow. was just amazing. I've still got it. Every now and again, I dig it out and look at what I was talking about.
0: Advertising on in the internet in the late 90s? Was that about Minitel or something like that?
1: Well, you know, I made a reference to that. What's fascinating, I think, you know, we're, we're straying into culturally we are, we are, territory as we always do, but I think this is probably very relevant talking about the stuff that we talked about previously. The biggest challenge that the French had when the internet came along is that there was a huge amount of protectionism for mm. Minitel, So for reference for anybody that was born after the 1980s, which I'm guessing is probably most of the people listening. So the French were actually pioneers in um, connected content. So they had this thing from the very early 80s, I believe, called Minitel, which was a dial-up terminal that you put in your home and you leased it from France Telecom. And you had, they they were phone numbers, but they worked very similar to URLs on a website. So you dialed in this number and you got access to, mainly text-based content. There were some very basic visuals that were usually sort of created out of ASCII characters. (laughs) Um, But I think what was really interesting is that it was run by France Telecom, and when the Internet came along, they sort of made it prohibitively difficult for people to access the Internet because they made such a huge amount of money out of the service. Yeah, there you go. But, you know, on on the wrappers of, um, you know, like packaging for Coke and candy bars and whatever else, you would have – the telephone number that was the equivalent of a website, and this is wow. even when I went in the in the eighties. In 80s? the eighties, they had these things, yeah. So wow, you know, the French were pioneers in yeah. the whole thing, but then they sort of got very stuck from that yeah. protectionism. Uh, any American listeners, I'm, I am deliberately using the word protectionism with great vehemence because <laughs> I think, you know they're, they're in real danger of suffering yeah, from absolutely. That. They've got these trade tariffs coming in and whatever else. There is a real danger that America suddenly falls behind dramatically if we do go down this protectionist route yeah. now, I'm not getting into politics, this is not necessarily a Trump versus Hillary and whatever else conversation, this is purely a from the outside in looking at America I worry because I yeah. think it's a real concern whereas you look at the opposite in Asia, we're sort of knocking these barriers down and desperately trying to can make it easier for people to trade across
0: borders mm-hmm.
1: well, I, I think, a, a rant didn't I? Say?
0: No, I think you're absolutely, absolutely determined to get the point out which was, had to be said and that was good for you and that is, you know, like, I think ultimately really what it comes down to what you know why Asia matters in many senses that the it, it's not about ideas as much as it's about execution because look at Minitel yeah. as an example right you know I think this whole idea of protectionism is like protecting ideas isn't it but we live in a world where ideas are increasingly you know throw away in a sense like you know, people say oh you know China's copycatted this and it's copycatted that well that's been history for the last 200-300 yeah. years and you know, I went into uh, I did an interview with the uh, Horace Deju, the 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 Apple analyst from a Simco, and he was talking about the you know how the automotive industry has really just been one one country just copying the next one. You know, it started yeah. in Germany, then it went to France, then it went to America, then it went to Japan. That's how it's been, and that's how yeah. it's gonna be. And now Asia's just doing the same, like China's stealing the technology for the Shinkansen bullet train and making it better, which the technology originally you'll be pleased to know came from Derbyshire in Great Britain, so they say. <laughs> is right? that right? <laughs> yeah, but the you legend. can imagine like Derbyshire is like the home of, you know, ultra fast train travel, but it isn't, is it? Endless. So, But, you know, that whole sort of attitude is like we had the idea, therefore we got to protect it. It's like stop them stealing our ideas.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's, there's something very peculiar about that as well. If you think about every child in the world, we learn by... Imitation, You know, this is this is the human way. It cuts out so much of the need to learn everything from scratch each time. But everybody that succeeds hasn't simply copied what happened before, because if they did, then they would have exactly the same result. So they've done something different. Either they've done it better, they've done it cheaper, you name it. And I think this is the interesting bit is it's very easy to score in the copycats. But if they are able to deliver something of indiscernible difference in quality for a significant difference in price, You've got to sort of look at that and wonder. Now like you've you've got the impact of brand versus the actual tangible product itself, especially when you come to tech. So something like Apple, mm. Apple themselves are very honest. You're paying for the brand here, not for the components that go inside it. The markup that they put simply because it's an Apple product is insane. I buy Apple products and I fall for the same thing, even though I'm a marketing person. So you know, I'm, I'm not in any way disrespecting <laughs> that. I am a marketing person, therefore I love the concept that you can do this. But I think it's you've you've got the technical abilities in an awful lot of Asian. Countries. And I think the only thing that's missing at the moment before they get to the stage of suddenly becoming a league of their own is the ability to tie that together with the ability to create a brand story around those products Mm -hmm. and services that is internationally tangible. I think, you know, if you look at a company like Gojek in Indonesia, for example, it's very specific to the cultural context there. So Gojek, um, you mentioned earlier about all these bikes that are around Asian cities, motorbikes. So Gojek is Uber but on motorbikes, that was its core. It's now loads of other stuff as well. If you've not checked out Gojek as a unicorn to be watched, then by all means put that at the top of your list because Gojek is astounding in terms of its innovation across things like mobile payments and all sorts of other stuff. But you know, if you look at that kind of company and you think, how are they going to go from being a massive success locally in Indonesia to let's suppose we look at them from an African context, how do they then translate that mm. through and then how does it crack Europe? So and I think, you know, from a from the ability to copy or to create physically similar kinds of quality products, it's very easy to see that Asia's got most of that down. In fact, it produces most of the products for the world already anyway. Mm. So just the ability to create homegrown Asian brands and then take those to the rest of the world, that doesn't actually take that long I mean, mm. if you think about the brands that have cracked the internet world we're looking at people like Airbnb as what 10 years old if that so all no. it needs is for an Asian brand to crack that branding bit and mm. then all of a sudden the tables have completely turned
0: Who's closest? Who do we know? Who, who would you say Asian brands? I mean, obviously, Alibaba would been mentioned at the beginning. I think they're probably one of the, the strongest just because Jack Ma's out there. But are there any other Asian brands outside of automotive and Japanese brands, for example?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think we'll, we'd, we'd need to leave Japan aside. And I think they're a useful reference, though. So if you hmm. look at the way Japan succeeded in sort of the the second half of the 20th century, the reason that they cracked it is they went from producing great quality, low cost products to then adding brand on top of that around the 80s. And then suddenly, once they got brand, then, you know, you look at it now, and -hmm. they are still very much admired around the world. They may have sort of slipped a little bit in terms of their ability to grow (laughs) their economy. But nonetheless, you know, there's still a lot of categories where you would default to Japan is the the ideal, or at least in the top three. I think what slightly concerns me at the moment about Asian brands is that they still have a positioning which is based on cheap. Yeah. I think it's, even things like Alibaba, much as I admire them massively, I do have concerns that they're still discount. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that business model, but everything cannot be discount. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a race to the bottom. You're going to have to have lower, mid, and higher tiers of brand if you're going to have a successful and growing economy. Mm. And I think it, it, you sort of got a lot of either end. So you've got a lot of. Um, Asian brands are trying to jump straight into the luxury bit, and I think that they will find that slightly challenging at a global level, because Mm. unless they come up with a new category, people are going to default to what they know. But I think that's a mistake to go at the two ends of the extremes. I think brands that successfully crack that mid-tier of... It's sort of the Goldilocks, isn't it? It's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's that bit that's just right. It's difficult to do that, because it's very difficult to stand out if you're middle of the road, but nonetheless... That's where the big opportunities for Asian brands are. I'm desperately trying to think of a good example of them.
0: Let's take us clothing brand as an example, because that that would be, where, where you know on the on the, the production side they have it all down pat. They can churn out shoes that you know at much uh, eco- a cheaper price than anywhere else in the world, right? So, yeah. um, Li Ning as an example, there's yeah. there's that. Chinese clothing brand, shoe brand, pretty much. Now, was he the basketball player? I can't remember, but he's got his own sort of, you know, like clothing line, but mostly shoes. And they're pretty cool shoes as well, because, you know, I've seen them, you know, the designs are good. As good as a Nike pair of shoes, probably made in the same factory, right? But that doesn't translate necessarily globally, does it? You know, because who the hell's Ning to most people in I'm the world? I'm just
1: looking it up now, because... I knew him, I knew the company at least from a sort of racket sport, so badminton uh, in particular. Oh, is that
0: right? I said he was a basketball uh, player.
1: <laughs> it does have basketball in here as well. So do you know what? This, this is the other funny thing, is that the story that goes behind the brand. Exactly. Right? So if you think about an Apple, everybody knows Steve Jobs, and there is the the story that goes with it. And I think that's maybe where Asian brands haven't quite Absolutely. yet. Is that you know, they are creating commercial entities rather than cultural entities. And I think that's the magic. Once we've got to the stage where we can tell Asian cultural stories that resonate around the world, that's when the brand takes off and that's when we'll be in a position that Asian brands can charge those meaningful brand premiums that we would see on a brand like an Apple or whatever yeah. else. But don't forget, I mean, you know, obviously we talked about the, the Japanese brands. You've got Samsung, massive, yeah. massive Korean brand. Um, and there's various other great Korean brands in there as well. And then you've got brands that are maybe not quite as famous now, but even just a few years back, brands like Creative. So great um, computer proofs yeah. out of yeah. that Singapore. So it's not that the brands don't exist. I suppose it's more that they don't necessarily get the cultural um, coverage especially in the media that a lot of the yeah. home brands do and I think that's that's also one of the challenges is that if we're going to make this the Asian century, one of the things that needs to shift slightly is the the media propaganda, I know that yeah. sounds provocative but I mean that, I, I remember growing up in the UK and having perspective on Asia and when I got here it was totally unraveled because I realised that a lot of what I had sort of painted as a picture of Asia was very tainted by whether it was politicised stories or mm. economies economic stories whatever else the reality in asia was very different to what i expected because i'd heard those stories and i think you know once we get to the stage of being able to tell those asian stories in a more global context we'll realize i think that an awful lot of people in the west have slightly skewed very skewed mm. perspectives of what asia is like so you're right yeah i mean a company like leaning Li it's still very technically based so i mean i think i, I would almost put them if you think about your brand perceptions in the sports world, which is where I'm going to put leaning, I mean it's it's kind of similar to an Asics. It's it's mm, a very typical right. sports brand, you know, great quality products, very specifically designed for the individual sports. But it's not certainly not from what I'm seeing, even in somewhere like Singapore, it's not the sort of thing that you would see on the street as a statement from youth Mm. unless they're making a very asian statement and even then it's it's a very sort of (laughs) it's a very over i'm making a statement kind of thing it's not a natural kind of casual wear kind of thing especially if you look at something like under armor i mean that kind of came out of nowhere in the last few years but their ability to build that brand quickly versus an asian brand it's amazing how much faster the american brands can still do that
0: Mm -hmm. i mean you you mentioned it already simon you talked about the the founding stories right you know Mm. and i think if you look at any great brand you've behind them is that sort of mythos isn't it and whether that's sort of hardwired into our human psyche that need for those kind of mythos is you know like you need to know the origin stories who founded this where did it come from yeah apple is obviously one of the best examples out there you know we all know about jobs and was and all that kind of story that goes with it, right? I mean, yeah. Amazon again, maybe, you know, like, you know, you know Jeff Bezos has been around for, like, since forever and he's been a part of that ecosystem. Alibaba, maybe, you know, like Jack Ma was the English teacher, you know, he, he spoke English and there's that whole sort of story about, you know, him wanting to import goods whilst he was in the States and all those kind of things. So those exist. But, you know, then you go to, like you mentioned, you know, handsets as an example, you know, like Huawei. Yeah. Just an example which which could be in it could be one of the biggest handset brands in the world in the future. It certainly yeah. is on on the on the you know the infrastructure side, right? But you know, can you tell me one thing about Huawei? No, and I think that it's
1: interesting isn't it? I mean Huawei kind of came out of nowhere and has Gained massive market share. But well, even a company like Lenovo, you know, they are Chinese based. I think a lot of people don't realize that. Right. Um, Lenovo obviously took over a lot of IBM's computer business. So there's a bit of a mixed heritage there in terms of the, the cultural background. But I think you know, there are two really important bits to this. So I'm, I'm going to get all technical from a, a, um, a sort of marketing perspective here. But the way that human brains are wired to remember things are dependent on stories. So Mm. from the very earliest age, we sort of tell ourselves stories to remember things. That's why religions are stories, cultures are stories, our parents read us stories with myths and legends that help us learn right from wrong. So Everything in the human brain is predisposed to learn through storytelling. And I think that sort of leads us to one of those great little aphorisms that I love to use when I'm doing work with clients. It's not what people buy that matters. It's what they buy into that mm. matters. And I think that's, that's where I think a lot of Asian brands are struggling is that they've gone out with the, the physical, tangible product quality story mm. and not so much of that here's a story that you will remember that makes us different to other similarly priced or similar quality products. Mm. You know, Luxury is all about story. Most foods even are about story. So I think that's, that's the bit, that's where we're gonna get the magic. So for any Asian brands out there, I think we've we've got to the stage as a region now where we've cracked an awful lot of this great technical skills. Let's start building those softer skills in terms of telling stories to a global stage as well. And a lot of that is coming down to a cultural understanding. Mm. Which brings us neatly back to that thing you were saying about spending a semester abroad. That isn't just for Asians, that's everybody everywhere in the world. If you want to succeed in this connected sort of economy that we've got where everywhere in the world is a connected thing now, you're going to need to get off your arse and go out and see stuff. Oh, you can right. see stuff from the comfort of your armchair. Obviously, the Internet's great for that. But that nothing, as you regularly demonstrate in your amazing sort of touring videos, nothing beats being on the ground and experiencing it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, we live in an offline world. Yeah. Exactly. Well, connect- well yeah yeah, yeah. offline online you know i mean alibaba i mean i keep bringing him up jack ma as an example you know the story with him coming up with the name for alibaba yeah was apparently i don't know how but it doesn't matter whether or not apparently it's true or not but the fact that story stuck isn't it it's like you know he was apparently sitting in um could have been in seattle or there could have been a version of him sitting in san francisco he's sitting in a starbucks and this was like in the 90s i guess and he he was just sitting there thinking about what his business was going to be and the the barista walked up to the table or the waitress or whatever it was and he he just sort of pulled them aside and he goes oh do you know alibaba this is his way of saying it and the the, the waitress whoever it was turned around and goes yes open sesame anyway <laughs> it, and he says yes that's that's the name of my company it's just a bit bizarre the, the founding story but uh, the point is is that, you know, he discovered that going abroad, right? And he, I guess what he was trying to do was he was trying to find a name which people, un, uh, which in itself was a story. Everybody knew the story of Alibaba, right? Like you say, we remember through yeah. a story. So everybody in the world knew Alibaba, right? And they, they knew something. It meant something, you know. Yeah. Open Sesame. They kind of knew that. So, you know, in, in a way, there's like a double side to that. The first is that you got to get off your ass and go somewhere to really find out and discover and test ideas and outside of your region as well. And the second point, how powerful stories really are. I mean, you've already, you know, we talked about Alibaba, but, you know, you've already mentioned Goldilocks today. So, you know, how many people know about that in the world and how powerful these are? And Asia's full of stories. And I guess, you know, to your point about the soft skills, I think that, you know, the key point there is that maybe it's just like, you know, there hasn't been a prioritization of this storytelling, but there's so much in Asia that they just kind of maybe in a way there's that sort of lack of confidence as well, isn't there? That you know they look at their stories and think, oh, this we can't tell that story. You know, the, the French are so much better, or uh, or you know the Swiss and their sort of like craftsmanship and so on. You know, but look at us, you know, we can't measure up to that. But maybe it's just a confidence thing that they can sort of look at that and think, well, actually, there's some really good stories here.
1: Yeah, and I think you know what's interesting about the confidence bit, seeing as you mentioned it there, I think this is one of the biggest challenges that when any, whenever anybody travels, especially for work they try and keep that amount of time that they spend on ground as short as possible. And I totally get, you know, that, that desire to rush back to family, especially when you've got young kids, you don't want to spend a minute away from them, but just arriving maybe the night before a big meeting. And instead of sitting in your hotel room and getting room service, go out onto the street, go to a nearby yes. bar. It's, it's difficult. I get it. You know, I, I turn up in a new city and I'm always like, oh, I just want to be lazy and sit here. But the number of amazing, serendipitous things that have happened to me sitting in a bar somewhere in a corner of some nondescript street in Asia... The things that you realize about people just by watching them, especially when you don't speak the language. You know, when you're an outsider, it's so much easier to learn quickly Mm. because you don't Mm. default to your own sort of stereotypes. So, you know, whether it's even if you insist on your hosts taking you out for a local meal instead of international food for lunch when you're there, whatever it may be, going out and witnessing people gives you stories that you remember yourself. So watching people, you know, that great lunch that we had, that drink that I had with the local guy, Mm. even... you. You know, just got talking to the stall owner at a hawker center in Singapore. You know, these are all things. Whenever you travel around the world and you say, oh, I went to this place, and then you tell a story about it, you tend not to go to, I went to Singapore. It's a country of 5.5 million people. Right, right. You know, (laughs) you're looking for the human stories and that's what's going to that's what's going to get you into feeling like you're on a journey and you're not just there to execute some kind of transaction. And, you know, you can do transactions and be very successful, but it doesn't enrich your life, does it?
0: Mm, Yeah, that's great advice, isn't it? Get, Get out the hotel room. Totally, you know, get out and don't eat at the hotel. I think it's probably the best advice for anybody who wants to kind of learn a bit about where they are. Don't eat at the hotel. No, no disrespect to hotel food, but no, absolutely. Get out Jeez. there and the you know the, the street store, the mama serving up local food at two bucks a shot, right? I think we
1: should make this part of the ATP thing. I think we should do an ATP tour of local food
0: joints. I'm
1: up for it. We should have a directory, maybe. How about that? Let's uh, get a list together of great places to go visit, and then you just get all these random, <laughs> random, serendip- tech
0: people. serendipitous moments, right?
1: But that's a good thing, right? So I, yeah. I'll send you my my tips for various different places to eat around Asia that I've seen, and then hopefully we can start to put together a long list of that. It will turn into a website, won't it? It'd be
0: Craigslist. There you go. Stuff. It started with the conversation. It's like Uber, isn't it? <laughs> well, why can't we do this? Okay. There you go. It totally. happens. Well, I think you know what well, that as absolutely is is the, the right way to go. And I think if you if you go back to it, like the most successful brands out there, whether, you know, it's Alibaba or whether it's it's the Western brands, is that the people who run these, you know, these brands have that ability that I suppose what it comes down to is empathy, isn't it? It's like they can, mm. they can understand what people want and they get that from sitting in those positions, like whether it be at like a street side cafe or Or just as an example, I mentioned him already, but Blake Larson from La La Move, you know, when he started that company, when he was like part of the founding team, he, one thing he did is he went to the taxi ranks and just stood there handing out cards and just like talking to the taxi drivers. And you think how important that is compared to obviously Uber now with its troubles. And a lot of people say like Uber, one of the reasons why Uber's kind of like, you know, well, at least Travis Kalanick got booted out was because he had no empathy, Mm. right he, his empathy was his problem I mean, he he had a certain set of skills which got it so far which is you know you just got to steamroll stuff but getting it to the next stage you've got to have to understand what people want right yeah. and you and travel is a great way of doing that right
1: definitely and i think now as you may know from our conversations i like a bit of data i'm a big fan of research mm. but i if i had to make a choice i would say that the most valuable things i've learned whether it's in life or as a career whatever else it's always things like people watching That's where you get the magic. You know, back it up by data later. But unless you're looking at the people and understanding their lives from a human perspective, no numbers in the world are going to tell you that story. So, you know, you, you need to go out and look at this, whether it's you taking your brand to Asia and telling a culturally relevant story in a local market, or if it's an Asian brand going out to the West and telling a story that's going to resonate on a global level, you, you're going to need to go and spend some time there. And look, I mean, it, it sounds challenging, but once you're there, nine times out of 10, it's amazing. Mm. I mean, Another half time out of ten, it's just a bit mundane. It's very rare that you get nasty surprises.
0: No, Touch- no. Well, they, they they make good stories at the end of the day. So, <laughs> yeah. Simon, did this latest report, this update, is that available now?
1: Uh, it's not even been finished yet, right. so it will hopefully be available by the time the podcast gets aired. So I'm hoping to publish around about the middle of April, right? Um, 16th, 17th. So okay. it should be up and around by the time you... It will out, be, it will right? be. Yeah, so
0: um, is it, well, okay, we put all the details in the show notes so people can go and grab a copy. That'll be your latest update to the Digital Lives report, right? Well, Correct. So this- the...
1: Global Di- digital report. Sorry, um, yeah,
0: the global digital in 2018, wasn't it? Was it called? Well, yeah, that was
1: the most recent one. So this yeah. is going to be the Q1 2018 digital stat. Right, and, imaginatively titled. How many slides in the, the update? Oh, this will be a relatively short one so it will be under 50 slides oh, right. we are not, not going to do the 5,000 on this one
0: when you said relatively short <laughs> I thought well we can only measure it in the hundreds right okay.
1: yeah no, I I'm, I'm trying to keep it a little bit more
0: manageable excellent and what's next more well, travels by your packet back at base are you sort of back yeah. at base for a while just kind of re, you know, recalibrating or are you off travelling so, again
1: no I'll be off travelling again pretty soon so I'm doing some quite interesting things um, so I'm going to be talking to some investment folks about the future of technology so this yeah. is a Quite interesting from my perspective, I don't get to speak to the investment community enough, so I'm giving my perspectives on where the future of things like social is going. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I'm doing a couple of client conferences, and then I am hopefully going to be back up in Japan in a few weeks' time. All right, excellent! So, yeah, a bit of, bit of Southeast Asia and a bit of North Asia as well.
0: It's gonna be Fantastic. good. Fantastic. Well, Simon, thank you so much for sharing your cracking stat today as well as all your (laughs) your insights and your stories and like i said you if you know if you want to get a copy of simon's latest update the q1 update um you can go and grab it from the link we'll provide in the show notes and we'll be back next month with some more updates more stats and more stories from your travels as well so i'm looking forward to that
1: absolutely and thanks again for hosting always good to have a chat with you so looking forward to the next one already likewise you've
2: been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.